Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hello, the In Social Work team would like to let you know that we have updated our website and as we approach our anniversary this year, we're looking to do a little bit more of a remodel. And in the process of doing this, we've also had to update some of our servers behind the scenes. So if you have any issue with your RSS feed for your subscription to our podcast series, we encourage you to go ahead and resubscribe from the new file that you will find on the server today as you listen to this podcast and in the future moving forward. Thank you. Hi from Buffalo. It's late June, so that means the Chautauqua Institution season will run from now through August 24th. Founded in 1874 as an experiment in vacation learning, the summer season features renowned lecturers, opera, symphony, theater, dance, recreation, and much more. People come from all over the country, but Chautauqua is less than 90 minutes from downtown Buffalo. It's a Western New York gem. I'm Peter Sabota, and yes, I do have a cold. Many are aware that when it comes to utilizing health and mental health services, men are not as likely as women to seek out helping professionals. This is especially prevalent when men are the victims of intimate partner abuse. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Venus Choi, describes the pervasive shame that male victims experience and their common belief that the services that do exist aren't built for them. The resulting alienation and hopelessness present powerful barriers to seeking support. Dr. Choi's work suggests that men's reluctance to seek help for intimate partner abuse is significantly influenced by societal perceptions that exaggerate men's physical capacity to stop violence and general expectations that men have the financial resources and physical ability to solve problems on their own. Dr. Choi's research describes the extent to which the meager existing services are used by men, and when they do access help, what kind of formal and informal helpers do they find most beneficial. Dr. Venus Choi, PhD, is Assistant Professor of Social Work at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, Texas. Her practice and research interests include intimate partner abuse against men, domestic violence, child abuse and neglect, child welfare practice, marital relationships, mental health of Asian Americans and Hispanic Latino populations, and provisions of culturally sensitive practice. Dr. Choi was interviewed by Charles Sims, clinical associate professor at the UB School of Social Work and the taller of the two co-hosts of the In Social Work podcast series. Dr. Choi was interviewed in May of 2014. So Venus, I'm wondering how you came to this work. I've worked in domestic violence with both the, the batterers as well as the victims, or some people like to refer to themselves as survivors, but I never worked with men as uh, intimate partner violence victims. So I'm curious as to how you came to this work. Yeah, I think this is a great question. Thank you, Charles. Actually, this question has been come to my mind for years. Originally, I come from Hong Kong. 
I had worked in the field for about 14 years, both in Hong Kong, China, and also in Texas. So majority of the clients came to our services, most are females, honestly. However, we discovered that we found that they are not the only victims. And we also find the mutual violence and the males are always the hidden part. And some males came forward and it's really hard for them to share their issues and stories because of the shame. So we realized that they did not come forward partly because they're concerned, you know, no services available and nobody will listen to them and they feel very helpless. I think this is an important social issue and also that affect all people, all family members. Okay. Are there any statistics or are there anything that gives us some idea of what the prevalence is? Right. Besides the personal experience in the practice, actually, I searched the national statistics that relates to one of my pilot studies. So based on the U.S., the national statistics, there's some projection number, like every year, about 800,000 of men experienced rape or physical assault. This is a projection number, an annual projection. And besides U.S., I also search around some other countries like Canada and U.K. For Canada, I find the number is as high as 500,000 of men experience spousal abuse. For U.K., wow, this is huge. 2.7 million men experienced partner abuse. Well, so this is not a little problem. Yeah, this is not a single case. This is a social issue. I think as you pointed out in a couple of your articles, it's about it being hidden, not that it doesn't exist. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned a pilot study, and I would imagine there are some other studies that followed that. So uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your pilot studies and how that began to inform your more elaborate work. This is really something I would like to share. These are the preliminary studies. I conducted two pilot studies before the current one that I'm going to share. So the first one is related to an internet search. I really want to know what services are available exclusively for male survivors or male victims of intimate partner abuse. So I searched online throughout different states go to different websites, organizations, and eventually what I found is there are only 19 male-focused services and four shelters in the United States that served male victims. And that has a lot of implications for me. Look at the numbers, only four shelters in the United States. But when we look at the national numbers, even though these are the projection number, how can we accommodate the needs of male survivors? This is number one. And another study is from the perspective of the service providers. I want to know from the service provider's perspective, whether men really come forward to approach them for services and also the helpfulness of the services or the issues or barriers experienced by men to seeking help. So what I found in this online survey, based on the service providers, one-fourth of the respondents revealed that male victims did not utilize social services at all. And the barriers they addressed are related to shame and embarrassment, denial, stigmatization, fear, and the male victims feel that they are not the service target, and these services are not for them. 
so because of these two pilot studies that really give me further solid and some preliminary empirical data for me to conduct the current research. And that's when the target population is the male survivors. It's not the service providers this time. It's the victims, including the survivors. Let me just interrupt you just for a second, because I do have a question. And that is, you spoke a little bit ago about there being 19 male focus services. Now, were those standalone services or were those services that were also, I guess you could say, more traditional intimate partner violence services geared for women, but they had a tract or a component that dealt with men? What I found is very few services address exclusive for men. I think it refers to the latter one that you mentioned is that include a component to serve men as well. Okay. So you've kind of got your preliminary studies done. Now you're moving into a, a more formal or a more extensive study. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So my research question for the current study, so let me focus on two because I have a number of different questions. The first one is about to what extent are the existing services being utilized by male victims and how helpful are the existing services for them? This one refers to the service utilization. And the second set of questions refers to to what extent are different helpers being approached by male victims and how helpful are different helpers for male victims? So this one refers to the helpers and I included both formal and informal helpers. The formal helpers include the mental health professionals, doctors, police, and the informal helpers, family, friends, church, and internet source. Okay. What were your outcomes? What kind of things did you find? Because I'm sure that following that work, you have some thoughts about where social work should go, both from a research, education, and practice perspective. So what kinds of things did you find? Before I address the findings, let me also state about the sample. Who will be included in this survey? Are the male victims that include the survivors? who had experienced abuse, at least one or more forms of intimate partner abuse by their partner. Living in the United States, adults, that means age 18 or above. So I use an online survey. I use a mixed method that included quantitative and qualitative questions. So some basic demographics. So most were white, followed by Hispanic, and the mean age was 43. And most have female partners, and over one-third were divorced, separated. Majority had children, and this is important. I, I need to make a note here, and then I will refer back. Majority had children, and uh, more than half achieved college uh, graduate level or above. Most were employed, born in the United States, and uh, there are some are non-U.S.-born respondents. One of the main findings refers to the service utilization. You know what service is most popular <laughs> in terms of counseling, legal services, medical, shelter, male helpline services related to substance abuse. So these are the main six types of services that I asked. So among these six types of services, counseling services were most used and followed by legal services. And the respondents indicated that counseling services is a helpful service. So I feel good as a social worker. 
However, in terms of the surface helpfulness, even though for counseling, honestly, based on the five point scale, this is the highest one. It's still like 2.96, not even up to three out of five point scale. So it has implications for us as social workers, definitely. And another observation I think is important to share is about the substance abuse treatment. Interestingly, it is perceived as the most helpful. Well, I would say not most helpful. It is perceived as helpful among the male respondents. However, it is the least popular. Charles, do you know why? <laughs> I'm listening here now. I'm curious. Yes. I tried to find what happened. And remember, I do have some qualitative data. And then I checked those data with my quantitative information. And I found that that might be related to the social stigmatization. I found that this is useful, substance abuse treatment. However, because of the social stigmatization, they're less likely to approach for the treatment. Another one is significant. It is extremely unhelpful source of services that is the shelter. This is rated as one of the lowest. And I think based on the data, it might be related to the discrimination and biases against male victims. I'm also wondering if the stigma might play a role in it also, that people might feel like they're being looked down upon for moving out of or escaping a situation that many folks probably feel they should be able to manage. Uh, yes, I mean, to some respondents, they did share what you just said, yes. And one more observation, I think that is important for the mental health or healthcare professionals that they need to know, is about one in three respondents indicated their use of mental health and health services. And that may be related to, because of the, for those you know who suffered from physical injury, because of the negative consequences that they might approach the consulted medical and healthcare professionals. So I think this is important that for the medical and healthcare professionals to be sensitive and be aware when they have these kind of screening questions when these male victims approach them. And sometimes they will make some excuse. Oh, I just, you know, because of sports, because I play soccer yesterday, I got those wounds and bruises. But that might not be true. So it is very important that the mental health and healthcare professional to have the knowledge and the sensitivity to ask the questions for the male survivors. I think as well as the training, too. So I'm wondering, I mean, how well trained are they? I mean, we have screens that people may utilize, but are they gender neutral? How would they rephrase the question so they take gender out of it? so that a person may be inclined to say, okay, they're asking about me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just something that is a side note, but I think this is important to share. I remember a couple of years ago, I'm a minority fellowship alumna. So I went to Michigan for a research training. And uh, unfortunately, I suffered from hives and I needed emergency care. I went to that emergency care and I had an intake form to fill out. You know what I saw on the form? There's a question, screening question about domestic violence. I was very surprised. I mean, at the time, I just asked the medical doctor, hey, I said, doctor, I'm a doctoral student at the time. <laughs> I said, can I? <laughs> I'm not working on this area. Very important. I really appreciate that you included this piece of important question in your intake form. And I said, can I include this form into my dissertation as in the appendix? 
to alert the field and people working in the field, the mental health, healthcare or social services organizations to be aware of this important piece. And then he said, of course, why not? I said, yeah, so <laughs> I think that has implications for us as social work professionals. Yes, we currently have some social work students working with medical students and there is a domestic violence question or questions. And you're making me think, have we spoken with the medical students about making sure that they ask everyone as opposed to just singling out people that they think they ought to ask the question. Right, right. Very good. And I saw some literature mention that please ask the same questions for males as when we ask these questions for the female. Be gender inclusive. Yes. So you talked a little bit about informal supports also? Right. This is something very important besides the services. Another findings refers to the helpers. Remember, I just mentioned there are seven types. So three formal helpers, including the mental health professionals, police, and medical doctors. So the results shows the male respondents prefer informal helpers than formal helpers. And among those informal helpers, internet source is the most popular. They prefer part of the reason because of anonymity. I think it's really hard for anybody, including male, female victims, to tell the the trauma or the difficult experience. And for men, I believe, I mean, it's really difficult. So they mentioned that they prefer using internet. And then some also mentioned some online support groups. Something that has implications for the practice, we have to explore other options of services for different genders. Besides, internet is followed by family, friends. However, church, I need to make a note on here, church is the least popular, least used or least preferred. When I look at the qualitative data, some male, not just one, some male victims I mentioned that they feel like they're rejection by some church people or ministers because they, they think they're not sensitive to their issues. One of the male respondents was asked, go back to talk to your wife. I think you just have to adjust a little bit your communication skills, something like that. And the man feel like his question was not attended, was not well addressed, and is not trusted in that relationship. So that's why the guy did not go back to the church again. It is something we revealed in the qualitative data. Yeah, it almost sounds like some of the old advice that was given to women many, many, many years ago about how to manage or how to deal with a violent situation at home. Almost like shifting responsibility to you to take care of or to the individual to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Another note is about the formal helpers. So again, I mean, the mental health professionals were ranked number one in terms of the helpfulness. So we feel good, but it's not enough. We need to work harder. <laughs> but the least helpful in terms of the formal helpers are the police. So it is very low. Out of the five-point scale, it's just 1.93 as compared to the mental health professional 3.08. So I think it is something that the legal aid or the, the mental health professionals, we all have to be aware of the issues. And that's why that also creates some barriers for the male victims to step forward. And I really want to share a little piece 
a couple of sentences that I cited from my qualitative data. And actually, that piece has been published as well. And I got a publication on this research just last month, April 20, 2014, in Social Work. So I want to share this piece. It's a qualitative data that also revealed the hardship experienced by the male survivor. So this male respondent wanted to share about his suffering and also concerns about child custody and finances in the process of seeking professional help. So here is what he said. It's hard for anyone to help. My state's divorce and child custody laws make it impossible for me to initiate divorce as I would lose my daughter, most of our assets, and I'll be on the hook for alimony, possibly for life. If I seek help through mental health professionals, doctors or the police, she would certainly divorce me and again, I would lose everything. I choose to stay in this relationship to be with my child and not be financially ruined. So this is the piece from qualitative data. I feel very, very sad. Feel trapped. He's trapped in the situation. Yes, and very helpless. The reading from this individual, the statement just brought something to mind for me. There is a kind of a format about thinking about intimate partner violence and call it the wheel of violence. Some people call it the circle of violence. It talks about a number of different areas where individuals can experience intimate partner violence over and above physical violence, things like intimidation, privilege, financial violence. I'm wondering if that kind of material came out in your work also. Yes. Regarding my research, the definition of abuse refers to all forms of abuse, including physical, sexual psychological, including verbal abuse in particular, and also stalking, economic abuse. And I saw something new to me is from the qualitative data. Not just one, interestingly, I, I remember about two to three male respondents mentioned the same term. They said this is a legal abuse because of the child custody. They are very concerned about if I'm going to report, who's going to be arrested? And they are very concerned about losing the child custody. They are no longer be the father. So this is the biggest concern. So they feel stuck whether they should report or not. Uh, I see. Kind of takes me back to what you were talking about with law enforcement or with the police. Is this notion of two people fighting. And obviously, if two people are fighting, the male can't be the victim of that and that. So people have these preconceived ideas about how intimate partner violence plays out and what it looks like. And your research is beginning to talk to us in the ways of saying it's not what you think. And you really, really need to reconsider that. So that I think that's really important. Just one or two more questions for you. And I'd like to hear if there's something that you think we as social work ought to be thinking about and moving towards in order to address this in a more proactive and a more helpful way so we're not re-traumatizing an individual who may be trying to deal with an already very traumatic situation. Yeah, that's why we are here. <laughs> that's why we are here. This is the very important. So, and I would address in terms of the practice implication. I think it's important for us as social work professionals, educators or researchers, be gender sensitive, be gender neutral. And I think we also need to include some besides some programs for females. We also need to design some programs for male and it should be male-friendly programs 
this is very important. I think both genders have their unique needs. It's different. So this is number one. Another one is I think I mentioned about when I talk about the demographics, it impacts not just one ethnic groups. It affects all ethnic groups. So I think it is important to identify and develop culturally sensitive practices and services. And another one is as a social worker, I think the term, because this is specifically for male survivors, I think there's something related to the socialization in terms of the masculinity. Why don't they seek help? To a certain extent, it's related to how men perceive seeking help. For some men, seeking help is a weak. This is a weakness. So I think it's important that they also relate the weakness to this is a challenge to the man's image. So I think it's important to reframe masculinity. And in my social work classes, the practice class or research class, I pose this question for students. How do we reframe masculinity in a way that is more acceptable so that men feel more comfortable to share the experience? And we figure out, I think maybe this is part of the future research as well. So some students and we co-create, we talk about instead of using the term help, maybe we can use some term be more neutral, like support. This is also seeking help or seeking support is a way of problem solving. It shows your courage to solve the problem, not just for yourself, but also for your family, including in particular your children. This is something that men really concern. So we frame it in a way to give the energy, the positive thinking, and also demonstrate man's courage and their problem solving, and this is important. So I don't know, maybe it's something that we can further investigate for future research, how do we frame masculinity? Yes, and when do we begin sending that message and how do we begin sending that message? I think you also make a very good point on, on saying men who may be escaping these kinds of situations and for their own children, how do you begin to reframe that term or those terms of the term of masculinity or whatever we want to call it in a way that so that they have a different perception about what that looks like. And so that's a really basic, I think you're right, I think that's a really basic idea about how do we rethink this whole term and that has implications for how support, help, whatever we want to call it, gets conceptualized by the person who needs it. Exactly. I think you also remind me Actually, this research is not just limited to the heterosexual partners or couples. Actually, this is a nationwide study and it includes heterosexual and homosexual, same-sex partners as well. So that means in terms of masculinity or sexual orientation, I think it's something that we have to further explore in the future because the, the term masculinity might be very different in the same-sex partners. So I think this is important to be another focus for future research. And the one thing is important that you mentioned earlier is as practitioner, I think we need training. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> and it's the, because of the ever-changing demographics and the issues, complexity of the situation, I think this is an ongoing and continuing education. Yeah. The more I think about this or the more I've considered this, it becomes very apparent that there's a hole in what we do and how we train social workers who are coming out of school to be prepared in this area. Venus, I can't let you go without asking you, you talked a little bit about same-sex partners in your research, and I was wondering, are the prevalence rates the same as far as we talk about intimate partner violence? 
Are the responses that individuals get from their environment very similar to what heterosexual partners experience? Yes, this is a very good question. And based on the data, about 10% are same-sex partners. So majority are the heterosexual. And um, they experience similar negative consequences in terms of physical, psychological consequences. However, I mean, because of relatively the smaller number of the sample size, I think this is something that really alerts me for the future research. I think we need to separate different sexual orientation so that we can address their unique needs. And I think when I look at some other art studies and literature, and actually they mention about the prevalence rate, more or less the same. Well, uh, Venus, you've given us a wealth of information, a wealth of things to think about and really consider for practice as well as education. I really want to thank you for your time and your energy, and I look forward to reading some more about your work. I think this is work that most of us don't get a chance to read or don't think about reading, but based upon what you've been able to study thus far, it's something that we really need to be including in our work. You are very welcome. I really appreciate this opportunity. But before we end, can I add something very important? I'm now currently teaching social work research and also practice. So I think as a social work researcher and educator, it is important to continue our research area, develop our expertise, but at the same time is to incorporate the empirical findings into teaching because it is important that we have to train up our social work students because they are the future practitioners. If we can have this impact to help them to equip with these knowledge, skills, so that in the future they're working in the field, they can help more people in need. So this is how I always use my current research incorporate into my practice and also teaching so that they have to think about uh, these are the current issue. Another thing is about the cultural competency that I want to emphasize because one doesn't fit all. So students need to be culturally sensitive and responsive to the uniqueness of different and diverse populations. And this is also what, you know, the CSWE, EPAS have been emphasized. <laughs> Contest really matters. We have to engage diversity and differences in practice. So I think it's something that I, I want my students to be aware of the different needs of people from different backgrounds. And this is a topic, the domestic violence against, regardless the victims, regardless of the gender, their ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic classes, still they need treatment and support. And this is my conclusion. <laughs> well, it's an excellent conclusion, excellent way to leave this conversation and to leave this discussion. Thank you for your time and your energy and keep up your research because it is critical. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate the opportunity to share with the public. You have been listening to Dr. Venus Choi discuss male survivors of intimate partner abuse on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.